0: Is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: G'day there, my name is Dan Fitzgerald and welcome to the Country Hour this Tuesday lunchtime, wherever you might be tuning in across the territory or via the podcast. Well, lumpy skin disease continues to move across Indonesia and it is now reportedly been found in East Java.
2: It's probably an extra thousand kilometers closer, so it's very significant and it demonstrates that the disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor, where the real risk will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to Northern Australia.
1: Yeah, you're going to hear from the NT's Minister for Agribusiness too, Paul Kirby, very soon. He's just returned from a trip to Indonesia where lumpy skin disease has been a big topic of conversation. And one of the number of companies that's looking to commercialise the production of the seaweed asparagopsis believes it's worked out how to grow the seaweed
3: in tanks and dams. You introduce a random event by having it concentrated in the ocean where you've got more control over the product, then the scientific breakthroughs we've had in growth and concentrations, you you have a better chance to control the outcomes.
1: Yeah, this is the seaweed that when fed to cattle and sheep can help reduce their methane emissions. It's a big story in ag and I'll tell you more about it before 1.30. But first up today, Cattle Australia, the brand new advocacy group for Australia's grass-fed cattle producers, is officially up and running with its first board meeting and an inaugural chair being elected just yesterday afternoon. It, of course, hasn't been smooth sailing for this replacement for the Cattle Council of Australia, with this restructure taking much longer than anticipated and a legal challenge to the new group's validity currently underway. But Cattle Australia, it now has a board. There's seven members. None of them are from the Northern Territory. Uh, But Gary Edwards, CEO of AAM Investment Group, which runs cattle across a number of top-end stations, he was elected to the board. Uh, But Queensland's David Foote was voted in as the first chair and he spoke to Amy Phillips earlier about why Cattle Australia was needed.
4: I think Cattle Council Australia worked out that its advocacy program needed a refresh state farming organization history was was potentially holding it back from achieving its national advocacy plan and you know it's a huge movement for an organization to stand aside you know from 1979 they've been advocating on behalf of the industry and i think it's really important to recognize the fact that they wished to stand aside to give a new entity a chance to succeed as a representative body.
5: Unfortunately, the restructure has taken years. It's taken a lot of energy and focus away from grass-fed beef issues. How will you be bringing your wealth of experience with Australian Country Choice, which was a vertically integrated beef company? You had both uh, grazing properties, feedlots, and as a processor. How are you going to bring those skills to unite the industry?
4: Amy, fortunately, this is not about me, about David Foote. I have a really exciting cohort board of directors that cover almost every aspect of the industry we're in. Yes, ACC has given me the opportunity to go from the breeding property through to the retail counter, which is, which is a really important part of understanding the whole supply chain. But each of the directors have special niche experiences and opportunities to bring to the table. And I think as a collective, and as a very, I guess, much more nimble collective we're down to, a, down to a board of eight, uh, which may or may not grow to to nine in the future. I just think we're actually going to be, able to be able to be more focused and maybe more directional
5: for the time being. How will you unite the industry, though? How are you going to truly represent uh, the tens of thousands of grass-fed beef producers?
4: That's a really, really good question. But the, the, the first priority focus, and let's say, Amy, the, the Board of Cattle Australia is only 22 hours old at the moment, so we we've still still need a little bit of breathing room because everything's a priority. But the one thing that came out of our initial board meeting yesterday was the need, desire and the want to unite those 40,000-odd cattle producers across Australia for us to represent them in their advocacy at national levels.
5: How will your group be funded so that you're robust against the likes of your other advocacy groups within the beef chain like the Australian Lot Feeders Association, the Australian Meat Industry Council?
4: It all comes back to memberships based on value propositions. So we need to be able to show the the people who are out there who haven't chosen to participate in membership of Bird Cattle Council or their SFO, but now that they want to invest in Cattle Australia, because they're seeing value, value for money. The other organisations, it's, it's tough out there for everybody. There's a, there's a high-cost movement to try and cover um, the continent as large as Australia and with a membership potential base of 40,000, it's not a cheap process. But we have no silver bullets. We have no gold lining, but we're there. We have sufficient funds to at least get the process started and rolled. But we'll also be reaching to a wider audience. We'll, we'll be looking at the RDCs in terms of some program funding where practicable. We'll certainly be looking to seek sponsorship um, to help it, to help us on this journey.
5: What's going to be Cattle Australia's first issue that you'll address?
4: The first issue to address is to harness uh, and unite the 40,000 um, producers out there at the moment.
5: And where to here for your group then? When can members expect to see Cattle Australia uh, lobbying on their behalf and, and, you know, banging on doors in Canberra?
4: Um, Well, it was Brisbane last night, Amy. Um, Canberra's re-meeting Thursday, Friday. They probably haven't got room for us yet. And we're not ready because we haven't got a clear message yet of what we are requiring um, from from the federal government. But when we have, then we'll be lined up on the door first thing in the morning.
5: There's, of course, a legal battle also underway, uh, brought on by Cattle Producers Australia. Um, What bearing might it have on Cattle Australia?
4: I'm not expecting it to have a bearing because whilst whilst we maintain the ACN, that was a previous dislocation. We're sensitive to it and aware of it and we'll be trying to meet with all those producers out there to, to, I guess, sort it and settle it to go forward.
5: And hopefully they become members.
4: Ideally, they will want to become members, Amy, yes.
1: That is David Foote. He's the inaugural chair of Cattle Australia, and he's speaking there to Amy Phillips, Cattle Australia, the brand-new peak lobby group for Australia's grass-fed cattle producers. It's taken a long time to get to this point, but it now has a full board. I won't read all the names out, but looking at the North Australia Beef Research Council catchment, We've got Bryce Cam, he's a grazier and feedlotter from Cam Agricultural Group in Queensland. Adam Coffey, he's an owner and director of Coffee Cattle Co. He's currently in central Queensland, uh, but he did used to run some cattle and do a lot of work in the Northern Territory a few years ago. And, of course, there is David Foote, who we just heard from there speaking to Amy Phillips. So Cattle Australia, it's got a board, it's up and running. First meeting yesterday, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that new body's aims and goals in the not-too-distant future. Hi, this is Robbie White. I'm the head stockman at Kalala Station. We're just here today doing some cattle work and some work in the shed today, getting ready to do some fencing, and you are listening to The Country Hour. And just speaking of boards and cattle, the NT Livestock Exporters Association has a new board member, It is Ken Vowles, the former NT Ag Minister, He joined the board. Uh, He wrote on his Wak Wak Consulting Facebook page, um, sharing the news. I'll, I'll share a few of his comments here. He writes, my family has a long and ongoing proud history in the industry, going back to my great nan, Rosie Alexandria. She was born at Alexandria Station and then given the last name of Alexandria. He also says, Nana Lillian Alroy, was born in Alroy Downs Station and family at Brunette Downs and Corella Creek. Ken Vowes says he's looking forward to working with some good people. So, just repeating there Ken Vowes, former NT Ag Minister, he's now on the board of the NT Livestock Exporters Association. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio, right across the territory. It is time now for a tune, but when we get back, uh, you're going to be hearing from the NT's current Ag Minister, Paul Kirby, who has just returned from a trip to Indonesia. What was on the agenda? I'll tell you after the go-betweens. the go-betweens there with Streets of Your Town on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory and we're always on the podcast if you're ever driving out and about and want something to listen to, download any of our episodes via your podcast app. Well, Australian cattle prices and biosecurity threats were top of the list of concerns for Indonesians who met with a delegation from the NT late last week the Delegation of Industry Representatives. It was led by the NT's Minister for Agribusiness, Paul Kirby. Michelle Stanley spoke with him earlier and asked him what he learned about the spread of lumpy skin disease in Indonesia.
6: We only got out to, uh, to one place in particular uh, to physically look at animals and, you know, they were all fine. But, you know, you just learn from talking to people about how quickly it is and has moved um, across Indonesia to know that uh, that archipelago, those islands aren't too far apart. But if it gets to the very eastern end of, uh, of Indonesia, then it's a very, very short jump uh, to Timor, and and obviously that's very, very close to Darwin. Then there's a few different schools of thought from people about whether, you know, uh, we are able to, to keep it out, whether um, monsoons won't be able to carry insects uh, those type of distances. I guess what we learnt, though, it was certainly in our best interest to take it seriously and uh, to make sure that we over-prepare if that's what is needed uh, to make sure that we do the best that we can, make sure that our farmers here have got all the support that they can have. It was wonderful to have uh, Tom Dawkins from the Live Exporters and uh, Will Evans from the Cattlemen's Association with us and we know that they'll continue to work really closely with farmers here to make sure they've got the best support that they can have as uh, as we will from a government perspective as well.
0: Yeah, the latest news when it comes to lumpy skin disease that we've heard this week is a confirmed case in East Java and a, a number of other regions, and then also unconfirmed cases around that area as well. So that's brought the disease about 1,000 kilometres closer to Australia than where people thought it was most recently. How do you tackle that from a government perspective, particularly you know in light of your trip?
6: Um, certainly w- one of the things that we were able to do, we held a round table on the last evening that we were there and had some embassy people, some industry people, and, um, and certainly, uh, us there as well, the cattlemen, as I said, and, uh, and the live exporters. The, some of the people that we had there, like, uh, Professor Miku, who, oversaw their covid response in indonesia he's now been tasked with their foot and mouth disease response and also been given lsd to uh, to get on top of as well so he spoke really honestly about some of the complexities uh, around the number of farms that they've got making sure that the vaccines get down and out to the to the right levels the right level, sorry, the the big players are, are all doing the right thing. They know that they have to be vaccinated, and and that's their best um, chance of making sure that their feedlots stay disease free. So we know they're all doing the right thing. It's just so many millions of small players that's the the trouble. And you've got to remember, like for these people. Their, their cattle, if they've got two or three of them, they're, they're worth more than their houses are. So if they get the opportunity or the necessity to, to save their investments by moving their cattle on before they get caught with something, you know, they have to do that because that's, that's their livelihood. So that does create some issues. Um, but certainly the professor was um, very aware of the timelines, very aware of how quickly the disease was moving uh, across there and, and, and some good conversations about how we might lean into that eastern side of Indonesia and, and start some programs there if we can to assist as much as possible.
0: On the Country Hour, Paul Kirby is with you. He's the NT Minister for Agribusiness and Fisheries. We're talking about a recent trip to Indonesia and you've just mentioned uh, the lumpy skin disease and, and foot and mouth as well in, in that kind of same vein. Is the assistance from Australia getting to where it's needed?
6: Well, I think that's one of the points that Professor Miku made, that it is difficult to tell just because like they've got in the range of eight or nine million different very small farms. It might just be mums and dads that own a couple of cattle. So to to ensure that it's getting uh, down into the provinces and out to every level is really difficult. And that's certainly in a concentrated area like they did in Bali for foot and mouth disease around the G20, like great news and and great that they were able to really concentrate efforts in an area like that uh, with how quick lumpy skin is moving yeah i think we're probably we've got some really good intel about the direction that cattle move when they're being sold you know east to west and uh, whether they get vehicles cleaned down and uh, before they move back to the to the east so got some good intel about how we can uh, look into the areas that haven't got lumpy skin disease yet and, uh, and what we might be able to do to continue to assist. But, yeah, it is a challenge in a different country. They've got their own uh, governance regimes and, you know, we can't overstep the mark. We have to be extremely respectful and, um, yeah, we have to work really closely with with all of their bodies, but it was great to be able to meet him.
0: Paul Kirby, you've met a, a huge number of people and, and seen various things on your pretty short trip to Indonesia. Does it change your perspective and, uh, and maybe change any sort of actions or plans going forward,
6: oh, it certainly raises the the urgency. Like you're aware of it, and and we're constantly already speaking with the federal government about it. But when you get over there and speak to people, and um, and you hear people like Professor Miku say, "Well, I'd love to come down and talk to the farmers in and the and the cattlemen in um, in March next year," but it might be too late by then, uh, was one of the comments that he made, um, but. Uh, He knows that there is a real sense of urgency to try and assist and try and keep uh, the disease at bay for as long as we possibly can. It's moved really, really quickly through Indonesia, and it certainly does give you a a much better perspective of uh, of the urgency uh, and how seriously we need to take this. I guess the other thing that was really, really great while we were there was to to meet a a lot of the young guys and girls that had been through programs in the Northern Territory and just see what a life-changing thing that has been. for them to go back there and and put that experience and knowledge uh, into play over there. It's wonderful to catch up with them.
0: Professor Meekery thinks March may be too late. I guess that means he thinks that lumpy skin disease could already be in Northern Australia by then.
6: Do you agree? Well, he wasn't necessarily saying that. He was just meaning that it, it may have progressed so far across Indonesia that it's it's very very close to the Northern Territory by that stage and hard to hard to stop. But the the pace that it's moving across Indonesia will be extremely difficult for anybody to to slow down. But yeah, I think his his messaging was just around the urgency to make sure that everybody was acutely aware and that we're treating it uh, with the seriousness that it deserves, and and we certainly are.
0: Do you think the NT is prepared if there was to be an outbreak here?
6: I I guess it's like most people will tell you that you you know you can't ever prepare for for some of these biosecurity risks you can't ever donate as much money as you would like to into preparing for things like this I know that we've done a mountain of work over over the last 12 months and certainly the territory government has almost tripled its investment over the over the course of the last 12 months so we're we're certainly taking it very very seriously um there's some people that are saying you know we just got to continue to buy us time as we did with with COVID to make sure that we get you know the right amount of vaccinations into the right areas and just you know most of your listeners will understand we we can't start vaccinating cattle in the top end or in the northern territory before we actually have an incursion of the disease because the, the vaccines are a live virus so so it's a bit of a wait and game but we're certainly doing everything that we can and we'll be as best prepared as we possibly can be.
0: Paul Kirby thanks for your time on the Country Hour.
6: Good on you Michelle really appreciate it cheers.
1: Paul Kirby is the NT's Minister for Agribusiness and he was speaking there with Michelle Stanley if you're just tuning in this is the Country Hour with me Dan Fitzgerald and it is seven minutes to one as you heard in that interview lumpy skin disease it is edging closer to Australia's north with reports that the virus has now reached East Java. This disease, which is carried by insects, was first detected in Sumatra back in March and has been spreading ever since, despite efforts to vaccinate against it. Bali-based vet Dr Ross Ainsworth, he says the movement of the disease closer to Australian shores is concerning.
2: There is a confirmed case that I've seen some documentation on from East Java, and that's in the last week or so. There was a confirmed case or a number of confirmed cases in Central Java in September. And uh, as of a few weeks ago till now, there are also lots more unconfirmed cases and it's pretty easy disease to recognize. So the unconfirmed cases are in Southern Sumatra, West Java, Central Java, and East Java. So it's pretty much, it would appear fairly certain that the disease is now spread throughout Java all the way to the east and the implication is that the next cab off the rank will be infection in Bali.
7: Right, okay. So for those that don't have an overview of what Indonesia looks like, how much closer does this bring lumpy skin disease to the north of Australia, geographically speaking?
2: It's probably an extra thousand kilometres closer, so it's very significant And it demonstrates that the disease is heading in an eastward direction towards Timor where the real risk will come from the uh, potential of insects flying across or being blown across the ocean uh, to Northern Australia.
7: You mentioned that... Bali was the next cab off the rank as Lumpy Skin moves further east. If it were to get to Bali, what sort of risk does that pose to Australia? Does that mean, you know, mozzies could be coming back on flights as tourists come home? What's your take on that?
2: Yes, look, it's not like uh, foot and mouth where it's so easy to carry on humans and other inanimate objects. So the risk is not that the... People will take it with them back to Australia. The risk is that it's then that much closer to Timor, where the distance across the ocean to Darwin is the least. So if, and it's a big if, if the insects carrying the virus can be blown across the Timor Sea, then every step towards the east in that direction is a bad thing. But Bali doesn't represent a risk for tourists taking it home, I don't think. A very small risk anyway. But uh, as I said, we simply don't know enough about this disease to predict it.
7: What do we know about how it, it spread so far?
2: Well, that's the issue, really. We know so little about this disease, so much guesswork and so little hard scientific information. We don't know exactly which uh, insects carry it. We don't know how far they go. There is, uh, some people are pretty confident that the spread throughout Java is by movement of of animals themselves or uh, infected material from animals, and that's quite possible, in fact, probable. The movement restrictions in Indonesia are a bit hit and miss, so it's possible for animals to move and spread the disease. It's not permitted to bring cattle and buffalo into Bali from Java, so that will be a good test of the movement of the disease. If the disease gets here, that will provide some sort of probable uh, proof that the disease is transmitted to barley through insects. The problem is that this disease has been infecting countries that don't have major cattle industries that export cattle and therefore depend on those cattle industries for their income. So it's It's never been seriously studied. They just use a live vaccine and it more or less sort of keeps it under control. But Australia doesn't have the luxury of using live vaccines for new diseases. So we need to know a lot more about this disease and we need better vaccines. We need uh, lots of research. And uh, unfortunately, we have to start almost from scratch.
7: How is the vaccine rollout going in Indonesia?
2: Very slow. So the big... Push, of course, is to vaccinate for foot and mouth disease, and that's uh, rightly so. It's a more serious disease for them at the moment. And also, they're just strapped for cash. You know, they've had to raid their treasury for the large sums of money necessary to, to buy vaccines. The, the buying the vaccines, probably the easier part. The more difficult part is finding the money to get that vaccine delivered into the cow. You have to get it out into the regions. You have to hire a lot of staff. You have to train them how to do the vaccination. Then you got to provide them with all the gear. Just to make matters even more complicated, when there's both foot and mouth and lumpy skin in the country, you can't use a multiple-dose vaccine syringe like we all do in Australia. You can't do that when there's a disease that's spread by a live virus. So you have to use a single syringe, throw it away, pull out another one, load up, and give the next animal a shot. So very, very expensive, slow. To make matters even worse, if you go to a farm in Australia, you might have 100 cows, you might have a 1,000, and you're there and you get the job done. In Indonesia, the average herd is two. So you go to the farm, you do your biosecurity, you put your boots on and scrub them and whatever other biosecurity... Then you do two head, then you have to take it all off and clean it all up or get some new stuff and go to the next place. Very, very difficult, slow and expensive.
7: With all that in mind, how are you feeling about lumpy skin disease and how do you rate its chances of coming over to the north of Australia?
2: In my opinion, it's a 100% chance it will get here. There's plenty of doubt about whether it could potentially uh, be blown across the Timor Sea, like lots of other viruses uh, get blown across in the wet season. But if that's the case and it can't come that way, uh, then it simply continues through the island chain of Indonesia towards the east, gets to New Guinea, goes through New Guinea and then comes down across into Australia through the Torres Strait, which is a very short distance and there's absolutely no risk that insects couldn't fly across there if the disease is in New Guinea. So I I think it's just a matter of time. Whether it's one year, 10 years, we just don't know.
1: That is Dr. Ross Ainsworth. He's a barley based vet, but of course he's worked in the Northern Territory for years and much throughout Southeast Asia, speaking there with Steph Sinclair about the reported spread of lumpy skin disease. Mm About time to head to the news and then to the weather. If you have any questions for the Bureau, please get in a text now on 0487 or 1057. Let me know if you've got any questions for the Weather Bureau. Speak to you in five minutes.
7: Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humpty Doo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby barramundi right now and you're listening to The Country Hour.
1: Hey there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks for joining me on the Country Hour this Tuesday lunchtime. I hope you're doing well wherever you might be tuned in across the Territory this afternoon or you might be tuned in at a later date via our podcast. We put all our programs up via the podcast. They're really easy to find. If You jump on the ABC Listen app or on the podcast app on your phone and just search for Northern Territory Country Hour. You can download and save all our programs through there so you can listen to them when you're out in the car and you run out of radio reception. We've still got plenty to come up on the show today, including meeting up with a company that is trying to grow seaweed out of the sea.
3: You introduce a random event by having it concentrated in the ocean where you've got more control over the product, then the scientific breakthroughs we've had in growth and concentrations, you you have a better chance to control the outcomes.
1: Yeah, this is a company that is trying to grow the weed asparagopsis. You've probably heard of it before. It's a a special type of weed that when it's distilled down and fed to cattle and sheep, it can really reduce the amount of methane that they emit. So it's a really important environmental tool in trying to combat climate change. And uh, you're going to hear from one of the number of companies right now that are trying to commercialise production of asparagopsis uh, But let's go... And check out what's happening in the weather. We've got uh, Sally Cutter at the Bureau today. G'day, Sally. How you doing?
8: Oh, not too bad, thanks.
1: That's the way. Uh, let's start in Central Australia today. Um, how are conditions around the Alice uh, this afternoon and the next few days?
8: Uh, not too bad this afternoon. We've got a little bit of cloud if you're out in the Leicester district and a little bit if you're up near Rabbit Flat. But generally, it's pretty clear. We might see the odd shower or storm down through that, but most of it's going to be on the other side of the border in WA. And that will probably continue into tomorrow. We might see the odd showers through the southern Leicester and or so the Lester and Southern Tanami, and then start getting those storms in from Thursday in the western parts. But the Simpson District will remain fairly clear until the end of the week.
1: Okay, you did mention potential for some storms there. Will there be much rain in them if they eventuate?
8: Uh, Initially, there won't be all that much, but as we go through, we will see those storms starting to drop a little bit of rain because they are going to bring that humidity down south. So around the the last of, sort of Thursday, sort of up to five millimetres. For, this is for Ulara, up to ten millimetres on Friday and Saturday, and then easing off on Sunday and Monday. Is the the middle? It's not so much driven by a surface trough, but it's a bit higher up in the atmosphere as that moves on.
1: Yeah. Okay. And for Tennant Creek and the Barkley, um okay. how are things yeah. looking?
8: Uh, pretty good. I Just Docker River, we could see falls up to 20 millimetres on Friday. So if you're closer to the border, we will see some bigger falls there. Up in the Barkley, we're looking at pretty hot conditions, 40 degrees for today. We might see a little bit of slight chance of some showers or storms uh, next late in the weekend, early next week. But generally, it's just going to be relatively hot then. As the cloud cover increases over the weekend, with temperatures... dropping down a few degrees down to 36 so it's it's still going to be pretty hot there so even though we are going to see those heat wave conditions ease off over the next few days it's still going to be some fairly warm temperatures out there
1: yeah top of 41 in elliot expected today that's warm
8: yeah it certainly is warm we'll stop those forty de, those plus forty degrees will ease off, but we're going to see they're still going to be so in the mid to high thirties for a lot of those places
1: yeah okay, and you mentioned that heat wave warning that's still current for for parts of the Arnhem district
8: yeah Arnhem basically the entire currently it's, the, for daily tewe Arnhem, Carpentaria, Gregory, Barclay and Tanami districts, and because it's over three days once, so it takes a couple of days for once the temperatures to ease to, to get out of the system, so even though we might be starting to see the temperatures ease today we 've still got two days We still had two days of those really high temperatures, so your body hasn 't quite recuperated yet, so we need another couple of days before to we be 're out of that heat wave alert
1: yeah, okay, and um, as far as getting some rain around the top end this afternoon in the next few days. Where's most likely? Uh,
8: at the moment, we've got storms down between Bowral and Wolloburrang. The clouds really started to bubble over the Arnhem District, so that's probably the most likely spot. But we should see some storms later this afternoon over the Daly District. And we're also already seeing a little bit of Hector, look like Hector starting to put in an appearance too.
1: Yeah, OK. OK. Um, and the big question, Sally, the monsoon. When when can we expect the monsoon to, to, to drop some rain?
8: Well, we're getting hints of the monsoon trough developing in the northern Arafura Sea, so well to the north of us, so late in the weekend, over the week, next week. But So that's gradually going to come south. So probably, probably safely say not in the next week we're going to see any monsoonal conditions, but we are seeing promising signs.
1: Okay, potentially around Christmas?
8: Potentially, yeah.
1: <laughs> but no, no hard bets at this point?
8: No, no it, the models only go out about 10 days, and once you get past that, there's a lot of uncertainty in them. Yeah, okay. And the, even then, there's a bit of variation between a couple of the models at, that, at the 10-day range.
1: Yeah. Anything else we need to be aware of today, Sally?
8: No, just be aware that it's quite hot. The storm shouldn't be severe today but just keep in, just be careful with the, when the storm's around it might still be a little bit gusty today and then tomorrow we're moving into more heavy rainfall is the, the main concern but it's yeah, just, just the usual for the wet season watch out for the storms and take care in the heat.
1: Yep, for sure, thanks for the update Sally. That's okay. That is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau you're listening to the Country Hour
8: Hello my
1: name's Tom Burrow. I'm a ranger over in Groot Island and you're listening to the Country Hour. Yeah, and you're with me, Dan Fitzgerald on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory, also available via the podcast. Well, the peak body for the nation's cooperatives has welcomed the federal government's proposed gas price cap as an important measure to help local food manufacturing and processing businesses. So this is the Business Council of Cooperative and Mutuals. It represents businesses like meat processors, dairy co-ops and food processing businesses. So all really important stuff to Australia's ag sector. Uh, Its CEO, Melina Morrison, says members really need reliable, stable energy prices.
9: Well, it's just a a truth that if you want to have advanced manufacturing, particularly in food and beverage, which is just so important to farm incomes, you know, that value adding that family farmers in particular rely on, you need reliable energy. You need reliable energy prices, you need reliable uh, workforce, and you need a regulatory environment that promotes corporate business diversity, including cooperatives. We need all of these factors to be working together so that we can get back to the great history of food manufacturing that we did so well uh, in decades gone by.
10: So it's something that we, we're trying to revamp these days, but people saying the price of energy has doubled for them in the last six months.
9: Oh, the premiums are much higher in some cases where we have members that are direct uh, gas users, their bills have sh- shot up. Um, you know, I can give you one example: an average 135,000 bill per month is now over a million dollars. So, you know, the, the, the price rises are astronomical. Uh, when we think about energy resources, in a way, they are the commonwealth. Um, they're assets that are shared, and it would seem that there needs to be some form of equitable reward sharing. To apply when prices are high because obviously um, the, the energy and resource companies are, are gaining you know it from increased profits from you know global commodity conditions which no one is in control of so I think this is all really about what is what is an equitable sharing arrangement Whilst these prices are so high surely we don't want uh, value-added important food production to go to the wall.
10: So we're talking about the dairy industry, we're talking about uh, meatworks, abattoirs, those sorts of things?
9: Yes, look, we have members in in the dairy industry, horticulture, meat processing, grain export and marketing. It is a mixed picture. We have, not for example, a new cannery that's opening up that's going to serve many farmers in the Lockyer Valley is already thinking about energy diversification. They'll have a methane methane plant which will effectively take them off grid Um, so they don't see the sort of future as as being too alarming but we have other members particularly in meat processing where so much important work is done in the waste stream as well taking waste from butchering and abattoirs out of the waste stream Um, it's been absolutely catastrophic for these Australian businesses.
10: And yet the energy companies and coal miners say, oh, you know, that's, it'd be distorting the price and uh, reducing our profits, you know, uh, is the wrong way to, we need to have sort of market forces. What's your response to that?
9: Ma- markets are never pure, uh, we could say that the invasion of Ukraine is distorting prices. What we've got to do is work in a cooperative way between all of the stakeholders um, in our economy to work out what is the best way of sharing the the upside and the downside. There's obviously an upside for energy companies and for their shareholders of these price, high prices and that is having a downside on domestic Australian owned businesses and in our sector, particularly in, the, in the food and beverage manufacturing area. Look, we, the gas reservation policy seems to work effectively in Western Australia. I think this is really about saying, what do we do to keep energy prices at a stable level to incentivize Australian manufacturing? We know coming out of COVID that we as, a, as an island nation do have food security issues and surely we wouldn't want to imperil Australians and food supply uh, because we can't work out agreements that are equitable for price sharing.
10: And the impact for farmers, they, so if the dairy processors or meat processing or abattoirs are really struggling to make a profit, then obviously that impacts on the amount they can pay for, for produce, for sheep and, and cattle.
9: Look, it all flows back in a cooperative to the to the family farm, to the small and medium business owner. We have around a twenty four thousand family farmers in agricultural cooperatives in Australia, who are cop cooperating to try and get market supply chain efficiency and ultimately that's better for the consumer for their purse at the supermarket it's better for the farmer and if it's a cooperative 100% of the profits made from the business remain in the country. So we do want to try and incentivise all types of business it's not just cooperatives that are are suffering from high prices it's many other businesses in other sectors of course Um, and as I said it's not a a uniform picture. We have other members Members who don't seem to be too uh, alarmed by energy prices, they're not directly in the firing line of the gas price hikes. Um, But certainly gas reservation or price cap um, sharing arrangements work very well in other jurisdictions and they can work well here too.
1: That is Marlena Morrison. She's the CEO of the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals and she was speaking there with Michael Condon about this uh, attempt by the federal government to put a cap on gas and coal prices. The entire federal parliament is heading back to Canberra on Thursday to vote on this bill. You'll hear more about that throughout the week. It is 11 minutes uh, to 1... <laughs> oh, apologies. It one eighteen here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, still to come, you're going to hear from a company that is trying to grow the seaweed asparagopsis outside of the sea. So, here's Troy Cassadali. Troy Cassadali there with Back on Country on the Country Hour with me Dan Fitzgerald on ABC Radio right across the territory. Well, there's a whole bunch of businesses right now working out how to grow a seaweed known as Asparagopsis. That is a seaweed that produces a chemical that when fed to cattle and sheep, it can really help reduce the amount of methane they emit. So demand for this asparagopsis it is huge right now. And a South Australian company is moving closer to growing this seaweed on the land. So we're talking about in dams or tanks. Alan Bryant from Air Shellfish, he says his company is still doing some experiments, but he believes that the land-based cultivation will produce a more consistent product.
3: We've had some fairly interesting breakthroughs recently. We started this journey thinking about doing growing this the seaweed, the asparagopsis on the water. And through the breakthroughs we've had, we're now starting to look to grow it nearly exclusively a land base, that is in dams and raceways.
11: Raceways like the one, one we're standing on at the moment,
3: I guess. That's right. It's a concrete concrete structure where we'll you can have moving water seaweed needs moving water as do oysters and these will be modified we'll have fiberglass raceways in between these structures as well uh, because we're testing a lot of things seaweeds asparagopsis is a new product and we're going through the science of proving it and proving how to grow it and how to concentrate bromoform the chemical we're looking for
11: why have you decided then to go to the, this more controlled environment of growing asparagopsis on land? When it, I mean, I suppose I've been told it flourishes around here at Cal.
3: It's prolific out in the harbour. But what you have in a wild environment is that you will get great growth in areas. You'll get a plant that's a metre away from another plant and one will have great concentration of bromoform, the chemical we're after, and the other plant will have none. You introduce a random event by having it concentrated in the ocean, where you've got more control over the product, then the scientific breakthroughs we've had and growth and concentrations, you can you have a better chance to control the outcomes.
11: So, given what you've um, seen so far and how much bromoform, how much of this chemical you can get from the lots of your testing at the moment. How confident are you that you're going to have a commercial quantity available in a few years?
3: Oh we're very confident. We've done our examples, we've learned how to enhance the levels of bromaform on land in our test hatchery environment. We're seeing great growth so we're very comfortable with the course we're taking.
11: So to, for those who aren't really familiar, what is Bromoform, and why is this something that I suppose the world is really looking for at the moment? It's
3: about methane. Methane um, is worse than carbon in the atmosphere for its destructive capabilities. Cows, ruminants, not just cows, ruminants, um, sheep, cows, they have, they in their digestive process, they emit methane. And bromoform, found in asparagopsis, actually eliminates it. And so you're, the cows become methane emitted free, and um, as a result of that, actually the ruminant grows up to twenty percent bigger.
11: And what's the uh, I suppose idea of how this product will be used? Will we feed cattle uh, seaweed in in the uh, in the paddock in the when they're in the feedlot? is there just going to be like a chemical additive that we can add to stock feed how is this actually going to look like when um, when uh, it, if it does get commercial
3: we've already perfected the science of extracting the bromaform you don't we're not going to feed seaweed to cows you have a very clean process to extract the bromaform out of the seaweed and then um, that is there is a process which is then added to cattle food sheep food and that's that's how they get the necessary amount into their bodies.
11: Now, when are you looking to actually have a commercial product of uh, bromoform?
3: We we would expect by 2025 is when we will have all our commercial quantities going. And commercial quantities for us means all these raceways you're seeing here full, and behind us we've got 35 hectares of vacant land, and you'll find those dams dams or tanks. Uh, the whole site will be producing seaweed spores on land.
11: And when we're looking at how much of this product you're able to make, how much when you first go commercial, I know it's a few years away, but can you give us me an idea how much are we actually looking at?
3: The best way to do this is these raceways and those dams that are full there, uh, you're seeing the dams, say so that's 15 million litres, we should be able to cater for 700 to a million cows, sheep. year when we have the rest of the site functioning there'll be more now you've got to realize this is a global product this isn't a product that's going to be just exclusively Australia there's demand screaming out for this product Europe the US South America uh, Canada so where there was no shortage of market opportunities for this opportunity.
11: Of course there are um, other people who are investigating uh, using uh, these sort of technologies in um, animal feed. Uh, Is there any chance you might be beaten to the mark in, in some aspects or haven't already been?
3: Oh, it doesn't really matter. We're, we're running our own race. We, we've we already raised all the capital and have our shareholders in place for what we need going forward. I congratulate anyone who's in the space because the market is so big. If everyone did what they said they'd do, there's still not going to be enough. So welcome all and sundry. Come come and do it.
1: That is Alan Bryant. He's the General Manager of Air Shellfish and he's speaking there with Lucas Forbes. <coughs> Time now on the Country Hour to check in with the cattle markets. Let's head to Roma, where Sam Hart has all the details.
12: Good afternoon. A total of 4,200 head were yarded for the last Roma sale for 2022. It was a very mixed quality yarding, which included a large run of yearling bulls from Mount Isa. A full panel of buyers were present and active, and while restockers were still very active on good quality pens, secondary lines struggled to maintain prices. Good quality lightweight restocker steers 200 to 280 kilos sold to a strong demand lifting 5 cents to 614.2 to average 575, while D muscle pens sold to 492.2 to average 414. Steers 280 to 330 kilos also made to 614 to average around 540 cents. New South Wales restockers outbid feeders on medium weight yielding steers paying up to 598.2 with most around 501. Heavy feeder steers lost 10 cents this week, selling to 450.2 to average 427 cents. Best of the medium-weight heifers at this point have sold to 500 cents for those returning to the paddock, while feeders are paid up to 448. This has been Sam Huff, the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks
1: for that, Sam. And that is it for the Northern Chedric Country Hour for today. Thanks a lot for your company. I'll be back on your radio and on the podcast same time tomorrow. Take it easy.